The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, where we uncover the truth, one guest at a time. For those who dare to seek, Veritas is the place where they shall find. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. Tonight, we continue with part two of the military abduction special. Weeks ago, we had Melinda Leslie on, and tonight, we have another brave woman tell her story. Not only was she a victim of military abductions, but she was also part of the military. Niara Terella Isley is tonight's special guest and will be with us shortly. Next week's special guest is Dolores Cannon, the convoluted universe. Dolores will take us through the fascinating subject of past lives and the lost knowledge she has acquired by receiving information through her subjects. It will truly be a fascinating show, almost like a time machine. Imagine someone who, in regress to a number of past lives, all of a sudden starts speaking another language, and the only way to find out was by procuring the assistance of language experts who confirmed, in one example, that the person was speaking the ancient language of Aramaic. Don't miss this show with Dolores Cannon. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You'll receive immediate access to all our inventory of shows, the Magicore Forum, and the Veritas Chatroom. Don't wait. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe, and take Veritas with you. If you want a Veritas subscription but cannot afford it, and are ready, willing, and fully capable to transcribe a show, I will extend the subscription for transcription offer one more month. The new deadline is May 31st. I will give you six months instead of three, but you have to contact us on or before May 31st and need to be able to transcribe in a timely fashion. For more information, visit the free subscription link on our website, veritasshow.com. By the way, I want to wish all the mothers around the world a very happy Mother's Day. I know the day varies in different countries. 
And let me tell you the newest for Veritas. This is actually very exciting and fun. If you've been to our website lately, you may be asking yourself, what in the world does this space up for auction mean? Here's what's happening. For months, I've received many requests from advertisers, and I'm now entertaining that possibility after a successful year on the air. We have the traffic and people in over 100 countries listening. Why? Because Veritas is truly an international show. As I venture into the advertising realm, I thought of a simple idea that would price our initial rates based on what someone is willing to pay, fair market value. I applied the same concept before when selling an old souvenir or a 1980s gizmo that I found stored somewhere. How do you price it? I simply put it up for auction on eBay. I'll let the market decide. So here's the plan. We have to start somewhere. I have two banners available on the website. I will put the first banner up for auction on eBay. The auction commencement date is still to be announced. The first auction will be for the banner on the right side of the main page, and it will last for seven days. The winner will get the spot for 30 days. After 30 days, we will revisit. If you are interested in participating, I need you to click on the This Space Up for Auction banner on the main page of our website, veritasshow.com, for more information. Are you ready to make Veritas history and be the first advertiser? One last thing. Why am I adding advertising to the Veritas website, you ask? Well, because we have crossed a projected threshold that now requires Veritas to advertise elsewhere. With this revenue, we'll be able to expand even more. So far, Veritas has grown with no advertising whatsoever, just your loyalty and word of mouth. Let's take Veritas to the next level now. I look forward to your participation. And those of you who are watching, I'm sure you'll enjoy the auction. For updates and news, visit our website, our blog, and for more comprehensive analysis, visit our forum and interact with members around the world. And now, get ready to listen to a story that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Miara Isley will tell us what she hasn't shared before in public. If you think military abductions are not happening, stop this audio now. If you want the truth, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. music you hear right here on the Veritas show is supplied by the independent artists from Jamendo.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on the guest, look up the song, and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at Jamendo.com. Melinda Leslie, and you're listening to Veritas. Miara Terella Isley is a writer, artist, and certified body-centered life coach. She's also an experiencer and researcher of all aspects of extraterrestrial phenomena, from government cover-ups to spiritual expansion of consciousness. As an experiencer of extraterrestrial abduction and contact, and her strange military abduction-type experiences while in the Air Force, Miara has gained deep insights into the workings of our world and the roles that different groups of extraterrestrials may be playing in it. Today, she works to raise public awareness about the reality of extraterrestrials, to shed light on the machinations of the shadow government, and reframe it all in a life-affirming and hope-filled vision of where we may be headed as a species from her own lifelong spiritual experience and perspective. She is the author of the upcoming book entitled Facing the Shadow, Embracing the Light. And directly from Durango, Colorado, I would like to introduce Niara Terella Isley. Hello, Niara, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's my pleasure having you on. Niara, first, let me share some background with the audience. Mm-hmm. Niara and I recently met at the International UFO Congress, of all places, in Nevada, the same state where your ordeal took place. I saw Niara's presentation with the rest of the audience, and have to tell you, Niara spoke 
from her heart. Tonight, I want to encapsulate as much as we can from Niara's life experiences so we can understand and come to the realization that this is happening. But Niara, I want you to take us back in time to your childhood. Let's give the audience a very clear perspective. Describe your childhood and the first experiences that shaped you. Okay, well, um, I can't remember not being a spiritual person. Though as a small child, I didn't know what the words were to describe what I was. Um, I was always very connected to nature, um, very dreamy child. Um, I believe that Mary Rodwell uh, made the reference, also Neil Gould, that uh, children that have ADHD, um, which I was definitely one way back when, um, that it might be some additional protection that's done through their uh, experiences with ETs to protect them from being too programmed. And uh, it's real interesting. I remember uh, doing some of the standardized tests that they do in school and getting so bored with them that I sat and filled in the little pencil marks in what I could, what I could figure out to be the prettiest pattern they, they would make on the paper instead of answering the questions. <laughs> right, right. So, so that's, you know, um, that's one of the things from childhood. So I don't know what, when they ran the test through the, through the machine, I don't know what they came up with with that. But Let me stop you for a second. You said sure. that you had ADHD, just like so many millions of, of children uh, who right. were born in the United States. I remember people who went through that as, as a child, and the first thing they did, they were prescribed drugs just to calm their hyperactivity. Did you have to go yeah. through that? I didn't have to go through that. Um, I didn't really find myself to be too hyper. I definitely had trouble paying attention. Yes. Um, the way that they were teaching, I guess, didn't really work for me. Um, and so I'd kind of lose interest and be a million miles away out, in the, win out the window someplace. Sure. And um, I'm sure, that, though, that if I had lived at the time when they were prescribing Ritalin or other drugs for this disorder, I probably would have gotten it. Right. Um, but unfortunately, I was a, a very early star child or very early indigo child uh, that was, you know, didn't have to have that because um, they didn't have those kind of drugs back then. And so one thing that did interest me, though, as a kid was science. As soon as I could read and uh, check books out of the library, I was at the library reading everything I could on, on most all the sciences, um, particularly the earth, the earth sciences, because I really wanted to know who we were, who was I, who, who were the human species, and where did we come from? And so at a very early age, I knew lots of words that grown-ups today don't know <laughs> because I was just so fascinated by the sciences and, and where we came from. And I also looked at uh, the church. I was a Lutheran. I was raised Lutheran and went to Sunday school. But I just didn't find anything there that was going to answer my questions. So I, I really kept my nose to the grindstone with science. And I was almost an effortlessly good science student in school, despite my ADHD mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. It's almost uh, what you said, that when you first started taking books out of the library, your goal was to find out why we're here, who we are, where we're going. And that is exactly what I went through also as a child. Mm -hmm. uh, in some classes, uh, in some topics like science, I excelled. In, in some others, like math, I could not do it just because the way I was being taught was not the mm -hmm. right way. Later in life, when it was mature enough, I learned it my own way. And this show was created to answer all those questions that you have uh, put forth, uh, the where we're going, who we are, etc. Right. What happened afterwards? Uh, did you have any experience with extraterrestrials as a child? Yeah, I did. Um, I didn't realize it at the time until much later, but I had a nightmare uh, around age four, a really vivid nightmare. Um, and what happened was um, I dreamed about going someplace with my sister, my older sister, who was 12 years older than me. And um, we went to um, out, out on the street somewhere at night and it was pitch black out. And she was with two friends, and I couldn't see who the friends were. I couldn't see their faces. And she left me alone under a street lamp. And she said, wait here, and I'll come back for you later. Well, I waited and waited and waited, and I waited what seemed to me like an eternity in this dream. 
and uh, it was so pitch black every place that the street lamp wasn't shining that, I mean, it was like being, uh, it was claustrophobic. And finally, I got terrified, more and more terrified, and I started screaming, and I woke up uh, screaming in my bed. And I, and I have not ever woke up screaming like that before. And uh, so later on, years and years later, when I shared that dream and that memory uh, with Bud Hopkins, uh, he considered that to be kind of a, a marker for looking at uh, the possible abductions. And I have a lot of other anomalous experiences kind of scattered throughout my life, too, like um, waking up one morning, I think I was around nine years old, and I had pain behind my right ear. So I reached back there and touched it, you know, like people do when they have a, an owie somewhere, yes. and, uh, and touched it, and there was a, a, a pretty large uh, rounded bump there behind my right ear, and it's still there. And um, and I remember feeling the bump and thinking, oh, my God, do I have cancer? Am I going to die? And I was really worried about this. And then it was like all the worry, everything just went away. And then if I thought about the bump later, I thought, oh, it's just part of my natural bone. And then the real memory of being afraid and afraid of having cancer and discovering the bump and the pain came back when I watched the movie Fire in the Sky. And then I was watching movie Fire in the Sky, and a, and, a, and a picture of an owl flashed on the screen, and that memory just came flooding back about the pain and, and the worry about, you know, what the bump was and, and everything else like that. So that's just a couple experiences. And just for the and, audience, in case they don't know what the, the movie Fire in the Sky is, the story of abductee Travis Walton, who's going to be on the show in the next few weeks. But what's with the owls? I saw the movie The Fourth Kind also, and they also mm -hmm. have an owl, which is really an alien. But what is your take on what the owl signifies? Well, I think it's a screen memory because owls have big eyes, mm -hmm. and so do the grays. And so it, they put that in as a screen um, to kind of take the place of uh, seeing something like a gray uh, extraterrestrial. Um, they use screen memory a lot. They use screen memory with me and during my hypnosis uh, sessions when we looked back. Uh, when I was with the grays, it seemed to me I knew they were tricking me with screen memories. And uh, so I would, you know, I would say, I know that you're tricking me, and I would see past the screen, but then when I would wake up, all I would remember would be the screen memory. And you mentioned the street lamp, then you mentioned the owl. Mm -hmm. So those yeah. are two screen memories. I mean, the street lamp could have been the light under a ship, could that be? Well, this, for me, the screen, the, the light was about being on an examining table under oh, a light. I see. And I was being examined with something that uh, once I came out of the hypnosis and I was back in an adult state of mind, um, as a four-year-old, I called it a stomach presser. I didn't know what else to call it. Uh -huh. But when I came out from under the hypnosis, I thought, gosh, that was like an ultrasound. It was like they were taking an ultrasound of my abdominal area. And it was real uncomfortable because they were pressing pretty hard. And... Um, So they took the ultrasound or, or did some kind of examination of my abdominal area. And, uh, and then they started doing other things. And this is probably a controversial thing to talk about. I, I don't know too many other people that are talking about this openly in their interviews. Um, but they started a sexual conditioning type of thing with me from an early age. And a lot of people might feel really outraged about that. Oh, that's molesting a child. What is it, a gel? Yes, it was a gel. Hmm. I was just about to say gel. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and um, so they started this when I was very young, and uh, it was kind of a conditioning for sexuality and sexual studies later on. And uh, we don't have to we don't have to get graphic, but just to, to no, let the audience no. know, where were they placing the gel, and what was the result of putting the gel there? What consequences did it have, and how you felt? Um, they did place the gel uh, down between the legs, and it was uh, arousing, and it was very frightening for a four-year-old or a five-year-old child who didn't really understand what those feelings were about. Right. Um, it was real disturbing. Um, and uh, then, you know, later on, and I'm going to go into this in my book, because the reason I think it needs to be talked about without, you know, trying to you know, excite somebody in the audience with some strange story. 
um, is that a lot of people, myself included, have a lot of difficulty in their life owning their own sexual identity because of the way they've been monkeyed around with. Sure. And uh, it leads to problems all the way from promiscuity and sex addiction to total frigidity. And, and, you know, and you can kind of go from one to the other and bounce back and forth. I've certainly experienced that in my life. And uh, this is something that needs to be brought to light so that people can begin to reclaim their own sexual identity free of other influences. And I'm not really saying that the grays are bad in what they're doing. I think they're doing it from a purely uh, scientific point of view and a study point of view and not intending harm. Um, but it does create a situation for the people that have these experiences where um, their sexuality is not their own and the things that motivate them to be sexual or not, uh, since they're hidden in the subconscious, um, a, lot of, a lot of things that go, can go on in a person's life that can be very harmful. And so it's, it's really time to shed light on this uh, part of the phenomenon so that people can begin to reclaim a healthy sexuality for themselves. Why do you believe they were using that uh, gel almost to accelerate the process of mm -hmm. you becoming, and I hate to even say the word, you becoming sexual? Yeah. Um, well, they were studying me. This, these are the conclusions I've drawn from my hypnosis, my own study, going quiet with myself and just kind of inquiring into myself is that um, what they're doing, if they're, if they're creating a hybridization uh, program where they're combining our genetics with theirs, that, as far as I understand, they don't sexually reproduce. Uh, and so they have to, if they're going to hybridize the species, they have to hook everything up right so that the hybrids will be able to sexually reproduce. And so they need to have all the same uh, feelings, sensations, motivations. So what would happen with me is I would be uh, brought into uh, a sexually stimulated state, and then my implants that they had in me would be giving off readings and, and information about neuropeptide levels, hormone levels, uh, neurological response, and everything else like that. And then they would take all that data And then they could use that in the hybridization process to make sure that in the hybrids, things got wired up correctly. That's the way I understand it. Do you believe that this was really an extraterrestrial experience, or could it have been a MyLab disguised as a, an extraterrestrial experience? I, I really believe it's an extraterrestrial experience. Uh, having had experiences with other human beings, uh, intent on control and harm. Uh, there's a very different uh, energetic quality um, that I believe you pick up on with your psychic senses. Your, and um, in, one, in one situation, no emotion of control or gloating or we have you in our power, that just was not there with the grace. It was absolutely scientific Uh, very clinical, uh, very cold, so to speak, you know, meaning lack of emotion. Emotionless, right. Yes. And then with uh, my experiences in the military, it was very different. It felt threatening. It felt life-threatening. It felt like, you know, there was an attitude of we can do whatever we want to you and you can't do a thing about it. And uh, just a very, very different feel between those two uh, situations. But I hear hear from Melinda Leslie that there's the high strangeness on the emotionless side and the technology that's probably being used while you're at the, at the jurisdiction, if you will, of the ETs. And then you have the clumsiness of the myelabs. Am I right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you were in the U.S. military, specifically your military specialization job was a radar specialist, right? Mm -hmm. At the yeah. Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. This is all part of what's known as Dreamland, right? Actually, that's not quite correct. No? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no. Um, Nellis Air Force Base is, is just uh, an Air Force Base in North Las Vegas, Nevada. Right. And then there's the Nevada test site. The Nevada test site is a huge area within which are contained many different areas with numerological designations. Area 51 is just one of those. Okay. There's also Area 25, 23, 32, and so on and so forth. So 
it's like you have this big area called the Nevada test site and within it, which are many different areas with different numerological designations. Um, and those can be anywhere from 65 to many more miles away from the Nevada or, or away from Nellis Air Force Base. So a lot of people just don't understand the anatomy of the Nevada test site and what Dreamland really is. And they don't understand that there's also attached to or adjacent to the Nevada test site. There's also the Nellis bombing and gunnery range and the radar ranges which on which I worked. No, I'm so glad that we're talking to somebody who worked in the area and can enlighten us with all the areas. And just a quick parenthesis, while talking with uh, Travis Walton, mm-hmm. every state has... As, as you know, areas in a square, if you look at the map, the area where Travis was abducted on the map in Arizona mm-hmm. is Area 51. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? So <laughs> it is. please explain then what constitutes Dreamland, just as a parenthesis. Okay, well, within the Nevada test site and all the different areas, there is an area called Area 51. The government denied its uh, existence for a long time. I think they're not denying that it exists anymore. You can actually hike up on some of the mountain ridges uh, nearby from the uh, extraterrestrial highway um, from that side of the Nevada test site. And you can hike up on these uh, mountains or ridges and look down with binoculars on Area 51. Um, The government actually bought up Freedom Ridge, which was one of the places you could look. And I think now... The place you can hike up and look from is is much more distant from uh, Area 51. So anyway, so that's part of uh, part of that. And what was the rest of your question again? No, I just wanted to, to know what constitutes Dreamland since it's such a vast area. Well, um, I guess what you know, I'm not an expert, <laughs> despite the fact I know what I'm talking about when it comes to you know the topography of the of the landscape there. Um, This is my opinion and my belief that Area 51 is a base that exists above ground uh, within the Nevada test site. And uh, just to clear another misconception up, no one stands outside the gate to Area 51 and takes pictures. That, That just doesn't happen. What you're doing is you stand outside the gate to the Nevada test site, which is a secure area, and you can take pictures there. But Area 51 lies well within the boundaries of the Nevada test site. You were in the military, correct me if I'm wrong, from 1979 to 1983? Yes, that's correct. Okay, years later, while while talking to a friend about your military career, you started getting nauseous and could not remember three months, January through March of 1980. And that's when you decided to undergo hypnosis, I believe, with uh, Bud Hopkins. Yes, yes. Please elaborate. Okay, well... Um, what happened was, um, I went to a, a, uh, lecture that he did at the whole life expo in Las Vegas in 1994 and, uh, very fascinating lecture at the end of it. I had some questions about my experiences I wanted answered. So I raised my hand and told him about the dream with the street light as a child and, uh, told him about another strange experience I had with a shadow figure in my room, uh, as a young adult. And then three months of missing time from the military, and um, and he pointed at me and he said, "Would why don't you see me afterwards?" And so I did, and he asked if I wanted to have hypnosis to try to answer some of these questions. And I said, "Yes, I do very much. I, I need to know what's up, especially with three months of missing time." And um, because frankly, I was really worried by that wave of nausea that came up when I realized I couldn't remember anything uh, from that three months. Now, I could remember general things, but only the most general things. I could say kind of like, I worked here and I did this job, but I don't remember any of the people I worked with. I don't remember the area that I worked in, and I don't remember, you know, any any details from that at all. So um, we did hypnosis that night and uh, just discovered um, some very strange things. Um, when he took me into the hypnosis, he uh, he said, well, let's go to January 1980 to uh, the missing time that you're concerned about. And he said, well, where are you? And I said, well, I'm standing on the deck of the radar van, and I'm looking up in the sky, uh, and there are saucers up there. And one is really close, and it's making a hum like... Uh, 
the only way I know how to describe it is like speakers at a rock concert when no music is coming through, but they're on. Mm-hmm. Kind of this deep hum with a little static crackle now and then. Right. And I was looking up at them. One was glowing orange on the bottom, and uh, and it was like a an all-over orange glow, but under the skin of the bottom of the craft, like, you know, really thin metal or whatever it was under there, it seemed like there was lights lighting up in sequence, uh, as if to suggest a spin, uh, but maybe not really a spin. Um, and uh, I was watching this, and I was really scared because I I wasn't scared of the craft. The craft wasn't frightening me, but the fact I was seeing it was frightening me because I was thinking I only have a secret security clearance and uh, I don't think I should be seeing this. And I was, you know, because if you're in the military and you understand the military hierarchy and the different uh, security classifications, you know that um, there are some things you just shouldn't be privy to at your level of clearance. And the fact that I was seeing this at a secret level of clearance, plus the demeanor of the people that had dragged me out there in the middle of the night to run the radar to see if we could track these things, um, I was terrified. I was really terrified. I was also frustrated because there was no no way the radar could track these craft. So you were not seeing it on radar? No, well, not at, not when I was standing out on the deck of the radar van, no. Um, we had just tried to, we had just previously been in the van trying to track these things, but it's impossible to track something that is, is in one area of the sky and then suddenly can uh, do a lightning or faster than lightning maneuver and be in another section of the sky. Um, there's no way a mechanical radar can, can whip around that fast. So that the audience knows you were placed, correct me if I'm wrong, on a team of auto track radar operators in the middle of the night to Mm -hmm. test our surface-to-our-missile radar on extraterrestrial spacecraft or possibly back-engineered alien reproduction vehicles at the Tonopah Electronic Warfare Range out on the Nevada test site. Do you think those UFOs, let's call them, or craft, were they ours, back-engineered, or were they really ET craft? My impression of them was that they were ET craft and not back-engineered craft, but I can't be absolutely uh, certain of that. Um, I'm just stating an opinion when I say that, but it seemed to me that they were awfully, awfully advanced. If our people can make something that looks that advanced, uh, my hat's off to them. But I'm not sure that uh, that they're able to synthesize that kind of technology. And I'm, I'm not sure they ever will be. And my opinion on that is that, you know, after years of education and research into this field, is the fact that um, the government is trying to back engineer th- with a compartmentalized structure. And so they have one person working on this part of the craft here, and then another group working on another part over here, and another yet another group working somewhere else, and so on and so forth. And they don't they aren't allowed to talk to each other because they're trying to keep it secret, and so everything is on this need-to-know basis. The proverbial right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. Exactly, exactly. So because of their compartmentalization, I think it slows down their efforts to back-engineer greatly, especially at the level of technology that the ETs have themselves. Now, I do think they've been successful in doing some back-engineering, Um, But I do not think that the level of sophistication of the craft that I saw is something that was back-engineered. Now, I know this could be speculation, Mm -hmm. but everything is compartmentalized. And even Richard C. Hoagland said it best, the lie is different at every level. Can you speculate who actually knows what is happening in all those compartments? Well, a few very high-up people know. Um, but I don't know who they are. <laughs> um, they have to have they have to have at least a few individuals that can have a cohesive look at the entire process. I guess my let me just rephrase the question. And before mm-hmm. I read your biography, yeah. I I uh, aired the audio from 1977 from Senator Inouye, where he talks about the shadowy government. Could this be it? Could it be the shadowy government and not the government that we pretend? or imagine that we're placing in power? I believe so, yeah. Um, Again, you know, I I can't say it is an absolute, but from all my years of study and research, yes, I would say so. So from 1983 
until 1994. Nothing came to mind as to what you were going through until you were uh, regressed, if you will, by Bud Huckins. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just didn't even think about that time period in my life. Um, you know, it was behind me. Um, but then once I did have the hypnosis, a lot of other things started to come to the forefront. Like um, I had uh, really nasty heart palpitations mm-hmm. uh, shortly after getting out of the military. Uh, severe enough that I went to a doctor for them and he hooked me up with all these electrodes that, you know, stayed on for about three days and took took a recording. Um, And then he talked with me and he understood my desire to take care of things holistically. And so I decided I would uh, work doing pranayama, which is a type of yogic breathing, uh, that every time one of these spells would come up, I would stop what I was doing and I'd go very quiet and just take long, slow, deep, even breaths. And that seemed to alleviate it over time. Then another thing came up where I was in uh, a pretty good relationship um, with someone I really cared for. He was a best friend as well as a relationship partner. And during that relationship, um, I got such incredible anxiety going on and depression, episodic depression, that finally I just decided I can't live this way anymore, and I nearly took my own life. Um, and, uh, and go figure, you know, why on earth would someone whose life is relatively good, uh, get into such a state? It's almost Um, as self-sabotaging the, the relationship. Yeah. It, it kind of ended up doing that. You know, the depression, uh, didn't help the relationship and, um, there were a few other things, but I'm still really good friends with him today. Um, we're, we're still part of each other's lives, even though we're not in, involved romantically anymore. Um, but finally, you know, it, it, it was a point of coming up to suicide. And because of my spiritual background, you know, remember for the child who was really spiritual and wanted to know about everything in, in the universe? <laughs> yes. Um, well, one of the things I studied in my, in my young adult years was near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. And... Um, and I thought, gosh, I'd really like to have a body out-of-body experience. So I sat on the edge of my sofa one time, and this was before I even went in the military. And I sat on the edge of my sofa, and I just repeated to myself, I can, I will, I am, meaning that I would project out of the body. And then suddenly I had this experience where it was like someone stuck a, a vacuum cleaner hose to the top of my head. And huh. it was like this, you know, and then yeah. I was out. And I was looking back at my body down sitting on the sofa, and it looked really, really far away, like through the wrong end of a telescope. And when I looked down at it, um, it was like all these little points of light gathered together and then coalesced into this little crystalline view of my body sitting way down on the sofa. And uh, it wasn't even like looking with eyes. And I look back on it now, and I think maybe I was an orb while I was out, because there was not a sense of having a body at all. And there was also uh, no tug of emotion, like our bodies are never free of something tugging on it, like emotions or, you know, thoughts or something. that We feel that in our body all the time. That was totally gone in the out-of-body experience. And so... Um, that it was that out-of-body experience that I remembered when I was contemplating suicide. And I thought, well, shoot, you know you're not your body. So if you, if you shoot yourself in the head, your body could be laying there dead on the floor, and where are you going to be? And because of my studies of the near-death experiences and the fact that people that commit suicide don't have the wonderful experiences that others have, I decided maybe I'd make everything worse by killing myself, and and no matter what it took, I better stay on this planet and work it out. As Dr. Rauni Kilde from Norway says, you know, dying is just almost as to leaving your car and getting into another car. You're leaving one vehicle to get into another vehicle. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Very much so. And I'm glad I stayed around, you know, but uh, it's been a heck of a journey since. Um because the memories I got from hypnosis with Bud, I wasn't, you know, that was 1994. I wasn't even ready, nor did I find someone I could even trust to do hypnosis again until 2003. And I had more hypnosis with Gloria Hawker, um, who is herself an experiencer of both uh, ET experiences and my lab experiences. And uh, 
And by the way, I don't mean to stop you, but if anybody wonders that sound that comes from Niara's line that sounds almost like a motorcycle or a ship, it's probably your computer's fan. Am I right? Yes. uh Okay. All right. (laughs) Go ahead. Uh So anyway, so I did have more hypnosis with uh, Gloria Hawker. Um, Found out that when I was taken out in the middle of the night uh, for that radar test, I was taken out of my motel room at gunpoint which is another reason for the terror that I felt. And um, it's, you know, it's really been a journey, you know, trying to look at this, uh, trying to talk to people about it. Because when I had the hypnosis memories from Bud, from the, the session with Bud Hopkins, I was moving in a community of really spiritual people that, that did uh, meditation uh, and yoga, and we ate health food, and, you know, we love to get out in nature, and, and that was right in harmony with me, because I've loved that my whole life, and uh, so I tried to talk to a few of my friends, and they just looked at me like, you know, <laughs> forgive the pun, but like I was from another planet, <laughs> Sure. and they said, well, that's just really strange, are you sure you're not mistaken about that, and blah, 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 and, and it was really hard for me, because I didn't want to believe such horrible things were possible either, and that launched me on a, a quest to try to find out what happened. You know, I, I studied and I read and I researched and I, I've spent 14, 15 plus years now looking at this phenomenon to try to understand what happened to me. Because as disturbing as what happened to me was, the fact that it could happen in the United States of America that I learned about in school as this really wonderful country uh, was even worse. That was even more disturbing. And you were so raised want, as, as a patriot. That's why you went to the yes. military. Yes, I was. And I still am a patriot, you know. But I'm not going to blindly follow anyone because I'm a patriot. I'm a patriot with heart and conscience who looks carefully at what she's asked to do. And if it's in alignment with my values, then I'll do it. And if it's not in alignment with my values, then I'm not going to. Tell me more about this the second phase of hypnosis. And what year was that part where you were taking out at gunpoint? That was uh, in, in January of 1980. Okay. Um, and uh, so there was that experience. There was um, the experience of um, being taken to Area 51. Again, this, uh, the Bud Hopkins session took me uh, to where we were taken to what I believe was Area 51 because I don't know any other place out in the middle of the desert. But why were you taking at why were you taking at gunpoint? I just want to go step by step. Um, I think that it was to impress on me uh, the seriousness of what what I was going to see and witness, and uh, to really uh, impress on me that I had to do exactly as I was told out there, and uh, to to let me know that my life was at risk if I didn't do exactly as I was told. So you were taken from the hotel mm-hmm. where. And to, was that to witness the UFOs? Uh, it was to see if the radar would track them. Uh-huh. And uh, in kind of back in, a, in alignment with uh, Melinda's research, um, I really believe strongly that uh, the military knew that I was uh, an experiencer, uh, abductee, if you will. And they probably wanted to see that if it, if it gave me any special ability to sense the craft or pick up on them with the radar. And it was a surface-to-air missile radar, not the big sweep-the-sky ATC radar. It was uh, a special radar uh, that when we get a lock on an aircraft with this uh, surface-to-air missile radar, uh, that lock tracks with a very tiny beam that allows us to shoot a missile at a craft and hit it as long as it doesn't get away. Can we really shoot at a UFO with a missile? Well, I think we could try. (laughs) Oh, sure. Um. And, you know, according to some people, uh, we have done so successfully. Um, but I'm not, you know, I don't have firsthand knowledge of that, so I have my doubts about it. But um, I do think there are things that, um, I think the ETs are protecting themselves now in some way uh, with some other things they've developed. But back in the early days, I think that the uh, radio frequency energy from a radar could uh disrupt the sensitive field created by the craft uh, to fly through the air. So just the radar itself could interfere with the craft's uh, propulsion mechanism and, and crash it. And that's how allegedly Roswell happened. Yes. Uh-huh. 
it, it was either that with Roswell or it was the thunderstorm. Right. Or right. a combination. Mm-hmm. Well, wouldn't that be, I hate to use the word pathetic, but wouldn't it be pathetic to be coming here from God knows how many light years and to come here and crash with a thunderstorm? Yeah, <laughs> it would be. Right. Uh-huh. So what happened after that incident? Um, well, um, again, let's stick with uh, the Bud Hopkins uh, hypnosis session for the moment. Um, sure. We were taken to, again, what I believe was Area 51, to a medical facility. Uh, we were sat down in a waiting room with the lights off. Um, you say we. Yeah, well, yeah, there were more people than just me. There were okay. uh, other radar operators. I assume they were radar operators and uh, other personnel that had been out there that night. So we Females were all... and males, both? I think the majority were males. Okay. I don't seem to remember uh, any, fe- any other females out there. Um, and then uh, we sat in the waiting room for some period of time. And then it was my turn. I got called to go in this little room that was adjacent to the waiting room. And when I went out there, or went into there, uh, there was a security guard uh, standing at parade rest with a sidearm, um, I suppose, to keep an eye on me. And I was told to lay down uh, on the on an examining table. It was stainless steel, kind of old style. Mm-hmm. And... Um, just you know, lay down on the examining table. I didn't have to take my clothes off or anything like that. I just was told to lay there and wait, and I did. And it's probably worth interjecting here that the fatigues we were given to wear that night, night did not have any rank insignia, no name tags, no identifying marks on them at all. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, I laid on that table. Again, I'm not sure how long, but I was really, really getting scared. Uh, I was also getting a headache uh, during this hypnosis session that just would not go away, and it stayed for three days after the hypnosis session. Huh. And uh, finally a guy came in uh, through the same door I had entered in, walked past the security guard, he had a white lab coat on, and he walked up beside the right side of my head and said, stay calm in a monotone voice three times. And when he got up beside the right side of my head, he had a hypodermic needle hidden in his hand or the sleeve of his lab coat, and he injected me in the side of the neck. Uh, Very swift, expert move, like he'd done it many times. And at that point, um, I, you know, it was like I felt the chemical rush straight to the brain, and uh, body started going into shock. And it was at that point where we backed away from the experience with Bud, but then I picked it up again when I did the hypnosis sessions later on with Gloria. So what happened after the injection was I was drugged off the table by two security guards and taken down a very, very long flight of stairs to uh, an underground part of the facility. At the bottom of the stairs, there was a... um, an exam, uh, not an examining room, an observation room. I was tossed in there, the door locked behind me, and I went through the effects of the injection. Uh, there was a one-way uh, glass in there uh, where I'm sure people could watch me, but I couldn't see them. And uh, I shook uh, very hard uh, for I don't know how long. I screamed because the sensations I was feeling were so strange and the shaking was so terrible. Um, the effects of the injection over time began to wear off and uh, I stopped screaming. I was laying on the floor, uh, still trembling. And uh, at that point, I was drug out of the room by the security guards and sexually assaulted by both of them. And eight people watched while this happened. Now, how do you know how many people were watching? Well, it was a small area. There wasn't, uh, it was fairly you know, easy to see that there were eight people there. Um, one of them was a gray, huh. an ET, and uh, and I didn't want to really, uh, didn't want to be in my body <laughs> while this was happening. And you anything would. I anything I uh, could do to get away from it, I did. And what I did basically was I memorized the sofa that it happened on in exact detail. Um, so I can draw an extremely accurate picture of that sofa. <laughs> do yeah. you think, and, and 
this I cannot even tell you how what an experience that would have been. Mm-hmm. But the actual rape, which mm-hmm. was a rape, right? Yes. Was it done out of just pleasure for the people who who did it, or was it was there a purpose behind it? It was. Uh, I I believe it was to traumatize me. I think that the people, at least one of the men that did it, really was enjoying it, enjoying the fact that he was terrifying me and abusing me. I think he really enjoyed it. That I felt that from him. Um, I was also really enraged, Mel. I was really enraged when this was going on. And in the hypnosis session, I remembered keeping at least a portion of my attention on the guns that were around and thinking to myself, if I get my hands on one of these guns, every person in this room is going to have their brains spread on the wall. Of course. That's how angry I was. And, um, but that didn't happen. Um, so I'm sorry. Do you remember the faces and where these two men, were they wearing insignias and ranks and uniforms? They were wearing uh, uniforms, yeah. They were wearing uh, desert camouflage fatigues. But no, no insignias? Not that I recall. And I do remember their faces. One had dark hair, one had blonde wavy hair. Um, so uh, I think the blonde guy was like a sociopath. Just one of those people that really inf- uh, enjoy inflicting misery. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, it was a mission. Obviously, if people were watching, those two people were sent there to conduct a mission. Yeah. Well, it, it may have been. They may have been watching. Some of the people that were watching didn't seem to be enjoying watching. Um, I guess you know maybe to their credit that they couldn't really do anything about it. Um, Almost as if they were watching an experiment being conducted. Yeah. Um, well, it may have added to the trauma, you know, to not just be raped, but to have people watching. <sighs> and uh, the hard part of this is um, trying to come back from hypnosis. You know, you get back into your regular state of consciousness after hypnosis, and you have to deal with this. Um And one of the things that I really think needs to happen is is I can sit here and, and talk data with you all afternoon. But I think what really need people really need to understand is the difficulty and the emotional impact that this has on a person. Because um, unless people can feel the emotional impact, like you felt from the stage uh, where I was talking in Laughlin, uh, I don't think things are going to change. I don't think we're going to really be motivated. It's our emotions that motivate us, you know, not our mind. And uh, people need to understand that I came back out of this into my normal waking state of consciousness. And as it settled in on me, uh, in my body, you know, feeling all the feelings and reliving to a certain degree under hypnosis, these things that happened to me, I remember feeling just panic, just like this tide of panic came up from the solar plexus and threatened to just engulf me. And I had to like push it down and try to cope with reality around me and try to cope with life. And then again, when I would try to talk to friends, they didn't want to hear it. You know, it was too strange. It was too scary, too terrifying. They didn't want to hear it. They wanted me to believe that it didn't happen. They wanted me to believe that I was somehow mistaken. And uh, so for years and years, uh, especially after the Bud Hopkins experience, for years I carried around this level of terror and post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, shakiness and I just had to keep pushing it down to try to maintain and live a normal life because nobody wanted to hear about it my friends and family didn't want to hear about this there was no place to go where, where was I supposed to go for help huh and yeah it is so unfortunate what you're saying now yeah because in over a year of doing this show mm-hmm. I've always sent the pledge out there to people abductees experiencers uh, mile ups uh, victims who walk alone with their chins down and not knowing who to talk to. And that's right. why I've always brought people like uh, Yvonne Smith and Whitley Strieber and you to talk mm-hmm. about this because people need to know that this is not science fiction. Yeah. This is actually happening. Yeah. And there's many people out there who live their lives on their own and they don't have a place to go. And at our forum, we have what we call a safe bastion for people like you who can come and talk about their experiences and try to find help. Because once you're helped, you'll be able to help all the others out there. Am I right? Exactly, yes. That's what I'm hoping to do. You know, at least, you know, by talking on your show, somebody may hear it. Um, They may feel 
a sense of relief flood through them thinking, oh gosh, I'm not crazy. You know, uh, I'm not delusional. You know, uh, the things that I'm feeling are real. Something really happened to me. You know, that's what I really want. That's one of the reasons why I've gone public is because I want to reach out to those people and, and, uh, and help them in some way. Because no, nobody should be a throwaway person. Not a single soul on this planet should be a throwaway person. To be used and abused and then cast aside, you know, that's just not fair. That's not what the human life experience is supposed to be about. Human life uh, experience is a sacred thing for learning and growth and, and on our soul's expansion. It's not, it's not meant to be used and abused and thrown aside or disposed of. Free will has to be respected. Yes. And what they're doing to you, it's almost as putting you in a hive. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you were hypnotized, mm-hmm. tell me something. When you're hypnotized and you come out of it, do you remember or do you remember because somebody plays a tape for you? Well, I remembered most everything. Uh, some of it, uh, you know, my mind still kind of slid away from and I had to listen to my tapes to kind of get it all back again. Almost like waking up from a dream. Yeah, and uh, it was it's not easy. I mean, what woman wants to remember being sexually assaulted? Sure. Especially under weird and strange circumstances uh, with people watching. Um, this is not my girlhood dream to, to be a person who has had these experiences and be talking on radio shows about it. Of course. You know, um, definitely not. Could it be... But, could yeah. it be, and I, I hate to, to interrupt you, but could it be that the rape part was performed almost because they knew that you would block it? You would completely uh, be in denial that it happened and that would block any other experiences you witnessed? Yeah, that could be. Um, one thing else about looking back at my childhood, uh, my dad was kind of a violent alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I developed this... Uh, thing where I didn't want violence in the household, and so I would do everything I could to control it. From from a very early age, I'd pick up the phone and call the police to, you know, come over and stop the violence. And when I got older, you know, around 12, 13 years old, I'd pick up a stick of firewood or something and threaten my dad, you know, to hit him with it if he didn't calm down. Sure. So that's the kind of person that I am. I'm not going to sit by and let bad things happen to anybody. You know, I'm going to take action. But in the situation I was in, there was no action I could take. They had the guns. I didn't. Uh, there was no action that I could take. And I believe that, that being in a situation where I could not take action really took a toll on me. Do you think you were chosen for those experiences because perhaps your background? Or were you just a victim, a number that they were waiting for the next candidate to come in to, to be the next and I apologize if this offends you, mm-hmm. but they were waiting for the next lab rat. I think that they knew I was uh, an abductee. I think they knew that I was an ET abductee, and I was specifically put in that situation because of that. How did, how did they know? Uh, the only thing that I can tell you about that, I don't know why I have such a strong feeling of it. I don't remember looking... Uh, at that speci- of, of specifically being told in hypnosis, but there's just that strong feeling, almost as if it's a given that they knew that I was an abductee. And then when I read uh, Dan Sherman's book, uh, Above Black, yes, uh, he talked about being an intuitive communicator, and some of the things, some of the work that he did was to uh, intuitively communicate with an ET uh, from a distance about abductions that were taking place. And about a scale from 1 to 10 where they were measuring that abductee's pain level or something else. And that really disturbed him because he thought, you know, what, 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 what is the scale? Which, which end of it is the high pain and which end of it is the low pain? He was thinking, what are they doing to people out there that they're testing on a scale of 1 to 10? It really disturbed him and, and he took steps to get out of the program. Um, so putting that bit of uh, information together with my experiences, that's what caused me to kind of conclude that, uh, yes, they knew I was an abductee and, uh, you know, I was one of the abductees that was reported back to the government that I had had contact. So the time framing question were those three months from January to, to March of 1980. Prior to that. Approximately. Prior to that, 1979, and after March of 1980, there were probably three more years. What happened around that time? 
Oh, the rest of the time in the military? Yes. Um, well, um, I went from the Tonopah uh, Electronic Warfare Range or Electronic Combat Range to Talicha Peak. And there my memories are just fine. You know, I pretty much remember everything from, from working there. Um, still wasn't a very pleasant place to work. <laughs> but uh, none of the memory problems of Tonopah. And uh, then... Uh, there's an awful lot of sexual harassment that goes on in the military, and I was experiencing that at uh, Talija Peak, and I was really disgusted by it and really angry. So finally, they reassigned me to the orderly room uh, at Nellis Air Force Base for uh, the range group uh, that uh, I was assigned to. And then we went to a different duty station. Uh, I was married at the time to someone, and uh, we went to uh, Gila Bend Air Force Auxiliary Field. It wasn't even a full-fledged base, and was stationed there for a year. And then after that, uh, the next place we went was uh, Mountain Home Air Force Base in Idaho. And there I worked on, uh, like, a, as a mission controller. I, I did several different jobs. I worked with technical orders. Um, I worked with uh, some administrative functions. Um, I worked as a maintenance control clerk for a while. I also did um, <clears throat> the uh, mission control work was uh, working at the radar site where you have the big radar that sweeps the sky. And then I'd get on the radio when we had an incoming uh, mission flying in and I'd call the coordinates uh, from, from my radar to the surface air missile and anti-aircraft artillery sites. So um, I would call the coordinates out to those sites, and then those sites would try to track the aircraft, and, uh, and then the aircraft could be trained to break locks on radar, you know, to get away. So what you're saying is after the, the three-month time frame that we're referring to, mm -hmm. your experience in the military was somewhat normal? Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, no UFOs, no paranormal experiences, just no. normal? Just normal. Mm -hmm. And no recollection, and that's why you were able to be somewhat of a normal person after mm -hmm. those three months without, you know, going crazy. Because anybody that remembers that would probably have yeah. gone crazy or, or perhaps even committed suicide. Yeah, well, um, like that thing I read on the stage about uh, shamans in training, uh, trauma, or, trauma is uh, a perfectly normal response to an insane uh, situation. And extreme trauma, and if you study anything about trauma-based mind control, uh, procedures done in Monarch and M MK Ultra and things like that, which I've definitely looked into because of what happened to me, uh, trauma, especially extreme trauma, uh, causes a part of you to splinter off and uh, bury itself. And it buries itself deep in your subconscious until you're consciously able to deal with it. You know, so you're consciously able to kind of take it out, look at it, and resolve it in some way. And um, as I mentioned on stage, uh, when I came so close to committing suicide and then backed away from that particular option, I decided to make that what I call 500% commitment to healing and wholeness, no matter what it took, no matter where I had to look. And then I think that it was because of that strong intention that my spiritual guidance kind of picked up and started to set up the people, places, and situations that would help bring any trauma to resolution. And when we come back from our break, and we have to take a, a very short break, uh, Niara, I want to talk more about what you read at the conference, because mm -hmm. that was a great thing you did. It, it okay. really moved all of us. And also, in 1996, a TV documentary aired called Dreamland, produced mm -hmm. by Bruce Burgess. You appeared allegedly in silhouette, and I say allegedly because they did a very lousy job disguising who you were, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and they didn't even cover your voice. Anybody that knows you could see your profile and see that it was Niara Isley at the time. They didn't do a good job. I want you to tell us how they were able to find you and how that went with the documentary, and if that was one of the catalysts to make you talk now. But let's get your answer on the other side. How do people get in touch with your work, your websites, etc., Niara? 
Okay, well, I have, uh, I need to get a website up there. Um, there's so much to do on a computer that I feel like I'm living a virtual life more than a real life. <laughs> sure. But one of these days I'll have a website up. For right now, the best place to really get um, some information about me or contact me is at my blog at wordpress.com, and it's called Encounters with Healing, uh, and it's at WordPress. So it's not too hard to find if you Google uh, Niara and then comma encounters with healing you should pull it right up and, and not can, to worry yeah. if if you have to change your website next week or next month let me know and your permanent page on the Veritas Show website will always have your current uh, website so folks just go to Niara's page on our Veritas website and you'll go right there with the most recent website from Niara okay Folks, don't go anywhere. We have so much more to talk with Niara off her experiences and what transformation she has gone through in the past few years. So don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. and you're listening to Veritas.